I'm going to need your help this morning because we're going to talk about some, some very important stuff. But I want to, I'm going to cut to the chase with you, and, and I want to start out this way. Let me just ask you a question. This question, as you're turning there, uh, I, I want you to really ponder this question through today's talk. I think this question is something that, and I, and I say this to you often, but I really, really mean it when I say it, and I really, really mean it today. <laughs> I, I want you to allow this question just to bounce around inside of your cranial cavity like a pinball I want it to just kind of knock some doors open in in your mind and in your spirit today the question goes like this what is the evidence of your faith what is the evidence of your faith you see if you have this incredible relationship with the savior of the world with God there should be some extreme, incredible evidence to that relationship. In other words, I mean this. Those that are involved in your life on a day-to-day basis, what would they say about the evidence of your faith? Would they see this incredible evidence to this incredible relationship that you have with God? Would they see evidence in your life that you are a faith filled person without really knowing how else to to describe this it's kind of like this ladies when you wear perfume and you walk into a room and then you walk out of the room the evidence that you have been present in that room remains behind you in the fragrance and the scent that is left there We know that you have been there because you've walked through with with the perfume and the fragrance on. And so when you walk out, there's evidence left behind in your wake, so to speak. What is the evidence to your faith? What is left behind? What, what What is the proof that your faith exists? What are you leaving on the people around you? What is the residue of your faith? You see, for Jesus, there was this incredible faith... There was all kinds of evidence to his existence. We see it in the Word. There were specifically three dozen miracles that he performed. You see, he had this incredible faith, but not only did he have this incredible faith, but he also had this incredible action or this need or desire to act upon his faith. And when his faith and action met, there was this supernatural explosion. And miracles resulted. You see, we see evidence of that. Let me say this to you. Your ability to receive a miracle is directly proportionate to your ability to believe and act. Let me say that again. Your ability to receive a miracle is directly proportionate to your belief and your action. You see, and Jesus tells us that it doesn't take much faith. In fact, he says that just a small amount of faith can move mountains. But for many of us, it just seems like our mountains continue to grow and our faith dwindles. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, he addressed this issue and he told us what the definition of faith is. He said to us in Hebrews 11.1, he said that faith is sure and faith is certain. Let me say that again. Faith is sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There is this assurance and there is this certainty sure and certain nowhere in that verse are there any uns but too often we operate on the status of unsure and uncertain 
And for some reason in our faith journey, we've watered down our belief structure. What happened to childlike faith? Think about that with me for a second. Maybe at one time you had this insatiable childlike faith. What happened to it? You see, for us, we have three kids, and our youngest child is Jacob. He's about to be eight. He's seven, obviously, about to be eight. And um, I don't know why I said he's eight, and he's about to be eight, and now he's seven. Helping you with arithmetic, I guess. Um, but anyway, he, he's, he's about to be eight, and he'll let you know that. And, and so, but he's got this like, incredible childlike faith. If he's got like a tummy ache, and I walk into the room, he's laying on the couch, he's holding his tummy, he'll say, Dad, would you pray for me that Jesus will make my belly feel better? And so I'll lay hands on him and I'll say, Jesus, we, we want you to make Jacob's belly feel better, take away the stomach pain, and so that he can go outside and play. Amen. Just as soon as I say amen, he'll jump up and grab his baseball glove and head outside. <laughs> you know what's funny about it? It's that many times his stomach ache is not gone. But he truly believes that it's about to be gone. To have that kind of faith in, in, in God's infinite ability. Wow. But you know what I, sometimes I, I say this, I, I say that I believe our faith many times is what I call bread and crumb faith. If you've got your worship director, just start following along with me here. Bread and crumb faith. My wife has this saying, she says, I can always tell where you've eaten in the house because there's evidence that's left behind. <laughs> Like if you've eaten in, in the den, there's always like this crumb trail from the kitchen to the den. And then it's like, you know, really significantly more at where I've eaten. And she said, I can always tell where you've eaten. There's the evidence. There's the sign that you've been there. If you've eaten in the bedroom, I can see a crumb trail from the kitchen to the bedroom and the evidence that you've been there, the sign. You know, sometimes I think in our faith, we do the same thing with God. God Give me a sign that you're there. Let me know, God, in the middle of my suffering that I'm going to be okay. God, you have to give me a sign, God. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, God, you know that I want that special someone in my life. Today, when I go to church, would you make that person glow? And would you open up the seat right next to them? Come on now, you know I'm telling the truth. We do this. God, give, give me a sign that you're, that you're there. We're, we're sign people. In life, we just follow signs like crazy. If we see a rain cloud, we grab an umbrella. We drive down the road and we follow road signs. We go to an office complex and we follow the, the, the directional signs to find out exactly where we're going. And for some reason, because we operate according to signs, we think that God does the same thing. Sometimes he does, but not always. You see, we think that God works through this visual stimulation just like we do. In fact, he doesn't. Remember, faith is sure and certain. Sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In fact, it's been this way throughout humanity. You can look in the Old Testament and you can see Moses. Moses is like, okay, God, if you want me, you've got to give me a sign. And there goes, poof, this bush catches on fire. But yet it's not consumed. A sign. The people of Israel are like, okay, if you want us to follow you, God, you got to give us a sign. Then all of a sudden, birds and bread begin to fall out of the sky. That would be manna and quail, for those of you that didn't catch that. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And then there was Jonah. Jonah was like, okay, I'm not going to Nineveh. So what did God have to do? He had to give him a sign. Swallowed him up in the belly of a well. I don't know about you, but I don't want that kind of sign. I mean, signs, we're signed people. But here's what I've noticed about signs. Signs are not the real thing. Signs point sometimes to the real thing, but they're not the real thing. You see, just because you see a rain cloud doesn't mean it's going to rain. Just because you're driving down the road and you see, and you're starving, you're on I-95 and you see this, this sign that advertises for a restaurant, the sign's not the real thing. You can't stop and eat the sign. What I'm saying to you is this, in a roundabout way. I'm saying that, you know what, we've got to quit pursuing the sign and begin to pursue the real thing. The miracle. Hello? I think sometimes in our pursuit of the sign, we miss the divine. Because we're wrapped up looking for the sign. God, just give me a sign. Just give me a sign. God, show me that your hand is near. We're so about the hand of God rather than the face of God. In fact, I want to share this with you today. I believe that many of us, we have enough faith in our faith cabinet, if you will, to believe for the sign. But we don't have enough faith to believe for the real thing. And I'm going to explain what I mean to you today through this talk. You see, we've got to begin to believe God for the real thing as opposed to the little teeny crumb. And I said all of that to set up today's message. We're going to look at this extraordinary miracle in Mark chapter 9 that that is absolutely phenomenal. What you have is you have this father and son. This miracle is is just sandwiched in between some things that are going on in the life of Christ. And inside of this miracle, you have this father and son who are just at the end of their rope. I mean, just desperate. They're they're lost. They're hopeless. They're so in need that the son is is having epileptic seizures. He's he's demon-possessed. He's deaf and he's mute. He's on a daily basis about to die. And the father has done all that he can and hopes and, and, and his dreams are starting to fall away and he just needs someone to give him a sign that everything is going to be all right and then there's this encounter between this father and son and Jesus Christ and rather than Jesus giving them a sign Jesus actually gave them a miracle you see Jesus has the power to end your suffering how many of you know what I'm talking about He has the power to end your suffering, and he did in this story, and that's what we're going to look at is his power to to end suffering. But the first thing that you need to understand about this story is this, that this is an obvious divine appointment. Jesus has just come off of this mountaintop experience, and it's been a radical experience for him. And he walks right into the middle of this difficulty. All the while, I want you to remember this, there's this difficulty that's going on in the life of Christ as well. We're going to get to that difficulty a little bit later. But what I want you to understand is that even with all of that going on in the life of Christ, he got outside of himself and he blessed someone else and he performed this miracle. Got outside of himself and blessed someone else. And I want us to look at this incredible miracle. Let's start reading in verse verse 14. Let's find out what we can learn today from this miracle. It says this, 
It says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. Basically, Christ comes down off of the mountain. He runs right smack dab into this bickering match that's going on between the disciples and the religious teachers. They're shouting back and forth at one another. A crowd has gathered around them to spectate, to watch this event unfold. Can you believe this? And then in verse 15, I love verse 15. Verse 15 is an incredible verse because it shows us the the wherewithal, the persona, the anointing, the charisma of Christ. It says this, As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. Wow. Now, I don't know about you, but like, think back when you were in high school, like a fight broke out, everybody ran to it. Everybody wanted to watch it. You know, but then all of a sudden this Jesus walks out, and you couldn't pull people away from that for whatever reason. Crazy, but whatever. But yet, you know what? Jesus walks in, and all of a sudden there's just something about this Christ, and they all turn around and run towards him. But then in verse 16, Jesus addresses the religious leaders. He says, what are you arguing about this time? <laughs> What's the problem? Verse 17, a man in the crowd, he answered and he said this. He's, before the religious teachers could say anything, he said, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but, but they could not. Jesus, at that point in verse 19, he takes his attention off of this man and he turns right to the disciples and he says, Oh, you unbelieving generation. He begins to question their belief structure. He says, How long shall I put up with you? How long shall I stay with you? And then he turns back and he looks at the man and he says, bring me your boy. And then in verse 20, he says this, so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and he rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Listen at the words of the father. It's been this way from childhood. It has often thrown him into the fire or into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, this is where it gets interesting. But if you can, understand this. He doesn't really know who he's talking to at this point. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And and Jesus picks up on it. He says, if you can, look at verse 23, I love that. If you can, I mean, he's talking to Jesus. And Jesus said this, everything is possible for him who believes. I want you to take that belief thing, that, that I want you to just file it in the back of your brain. Everything is possible for him who believes. Then look what happens in verse 24. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Now here's what's interesting. This word exclaimed in the Greek means that he actually shouted. I do believe. All of these people, now get this, all of these people are gathered around. You have the religious teachers, you have the disciples, you have this crowd of spectators, you have his son and him, and he says, I do believe. And right after he says, I do believe, look what he says. He says, but help me overcome my unbelief. One minute he says, I believe, and then the next thing out of his mouth is, I'm not sure that I believe. I believe, but I'm not sure. I believe, but can you help me overcome it? You see, I believe it played out like this. I do believe. And then I believe he leaned into the ear of Jesus and said, can you give me a sign? 
Can you let me know that everything's going to be all right? I just need a sign. Help me with my unbelief. If you'll give me just a little sign, I think I'll be all right. You see, I want to pause right here with you today because I really think that a lot of us are in the same place. I think we're in the same boat as this dude. I think this is where our faith kind of stalls. This is where it just comes to a standstill. You see, for many of us today, we're, we're suffering. We're suffering, maybe not to the degree, to the extent that this father and son are, but, but we've got some difficulty in our life. Maybe, maybe your marriage is upside down. Maybe your finances have exploded. Maybe you're struggling with a health issue. Maybe you're fighting an addiction. Maybe you're jobless and you're suffering. And you're standing there looking up to heaven and you're screaming, Jesus, just give me a sign when you should be screaming, Jesus, just give me a miracle. You see, where's your faith at today? Let me ask you another question. This is a question that you've got to answer honestly for yourself. How does your faith respond to suffering? How does your faith respond when the difficulties of life come? How does your faith respond to it? Because in this passage of Scripture, there are four different responses to this dude's suffering. There are four different things that take place in this passage of Scripture. And I want to dissect those things with you. There are four players and they all respond a little differently to to the suffering. Their faith is a little bit different. First off, let me start with you this way. I want you to fill in the blank if you've got your worship director. I believe the first aspect of faith that is present that day was the afflicted faith. Write that down. The afflicted faith. You see, the father and the son obviously were at the end of the rope. They were just entrenched in pain and difficulty and suffering. It was so overwhelming. And it's even evident in, in verse 17 in the father's voice. When Jesus asked the, the, uh, the religious teachers what's going on here, and then he just jumps in with a response, and he says this in verse 17. You can look at it. But here's basically what he says. He says, teacher, I, we're at the end of our rope. I don't know where else to go. I've been all over the countryside. I've gone to doctors. I've gone to surgeons. I, I, I've gone to these self-help programs. I, I, I've, we've taken the right vitamins. We've done everything we're supposed to do. But yet there's no hope for my son. He's been this way since he was a little child. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't have a clue as to what's going on. I, I'm absolutely hopeless. I don't know what else to do. I see him near death every single day. Can you imagine with me for a second the pain of this? Can you imagine seeing this difficulty play out day in and day out? Can you imagine being the father of this child? Imagine that with me for a second. Day in and day out, you see your son go into epileptic seizures. Day in and day out, you see him at near-death experiences. Day in and day out, he is so afflicted and it is just absolutely killing you. Can you imagine being this child who's deaf and mute but wants to be well? He looks at everybody else and he wants to be well. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it's done to their faith? You see, can you imagine where their faith is at with this thing? You see, a lot of us, we can relate. 
in our toughness, in our suffering, we can relate. Maybe not on that extent. Maybe we don't have that kind of pain, but our pain's real. Maybe we're fighting an addiction. Maybe someone we love is going and running as far away from God as as they could possibly run. Maybe you're going through a tumultuous experience that you never dreamed that you would and you just cannot see past your pain. You can't see past the negative balance in your checking account. Your faith is not big enough anymore. You can't see past your upside down relationship, your marriage that has exploded. You, You just cannot see past it anymore. In other words, your faith, here's here's the deal. Your faith has been affected by your affliction. Or should I say your faith has been infected by your affliction. You see, is your faith sick today? Is it dead? Is it is it dying? Is, Is it, you know, is it messed up? Maybe it is. Maybe you're in this same position and your faith is absolutely afflicted. It's, it's so small now because all you can see is your difficulty. That's the first faith aspect that's there. Then there's another one that Jesus has to navigate through. This one he weeds through very quickly. But it's, it's, it's really how the disciples handle things. They handle things kind of in a superficial way. Maybe you handle suffering in a superficial way. Maybe someone walks up to you and says, you know what, I'm dealing with this and I just need God to show up. And and you're like, you know what, God can show up. And you pray a little superficial prayer and then you turn around and you walk off and you're like, God's man, they're in trouble. That's kind of what's going on here. It's what I call superficial faith. You see, those are the people who, who have a surface level faith. They, they believe in God, but yet they're not real sure about this miracle stuff. They've never worked their faith. They've never cultivated their faith to where, you know, it, they actually believe in this miracle stuff. They have what I call a second-hand faith. Let me tell you what that is because this is interesting. Some of us may suffer from this. That's when you've been around someone who's full of faith. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a brother. Maybe it's a mother. Maybe it's a father. Maybe... You know, maybe you come to church occasionally and you've been around this supernatural huge faith, but that faith has never become your own faith. You've lived your Christian walk through them. You see, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 16. He has this conversation with the disciples. The disciples are are standing around, sitting around the fire, and he walks up and he says, who do the people say that I am? Who do they say I am? And some of them say, well, I'll tell you who they say you are. They say that you're Elijah. Some of them say you're Jeremiah. Some of them even say you're John the Baptist. And then he turns the conversation. He says, okay, that's what they say. But what do you say? Who do you say that I am? You know what he's doing? He's trying to find out that if they have faith in him. He's trying to make sure that their faith is not, they're not living using someone else's faith. Then he looks at Peter and he says, but who do you say that I am? He wanted to make sure that Peter had this this real faith. You see, this aspect is in this passage. All you have to do is look at it in verse 18. Look there. You you can see this jumping right off the pages at you. It says this. The Father says, I asked your disciples, could they cast out this spirit? But they could not. Jesus turns to them and says, you unbelieving generation. 
how long shall I put up with you? Can you imagine that? That's pretty strong words. Has your wife ever said that to you? (laughs) Your husband? (laughs) Your mother? Your father? How long shall I put up with you? (laughs) You know? It's pretty strong words. And then he goes right to this. You know what he's saying when he says, how long shall I put up with you? He's saying this. You can't rely on someone else's faith. You've got to elevate your own faith. You see, just because your mama's been saved for 50 years doesn't mean your faith is right. Just because you come to church on an occasional basis doesn't mean that your faith is right. That's what he's saying. That's incredible to me. And, and, and then on top of that, there's, he goes one step further because, you see, Jesus has been walking around with this faith and you see this faith as he's walking around. But you know what? The disciples had not yet picked up his faith. They had not yet made his faith theirs. They were riding his coattail. They were letting him do all the work. They were living their faith through him, through his eyes. They hadn't done anything on their own yet. In fact, Mark conveys this message in verses 28 and 29. Look there with me. You've got to see this. This is very interesting. Sometimes people uh, have the wrong impression of what Jesus is saying. I'm going to tell you what he's saying right here. In verse 28, the disciples, after the miracle takes place... The disciples and Jesus go to this private place and the disciples say, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out that spirit? And look what Jesus says to him in verse 29. He says, because this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. You know what he's saying? You guys haven't been praying. You guys haven't been fasting. You guys are not serious. You guys, your faith has not been elevated yet. You couldn't have done it if you wanted to because your faith isn't there. You see, you've got to get serious about your suffering. You've got to get serious. If you've got a marital situation, if you've got a financial situation, a health situation, an occupational situation, get serious about it. Get into God's Word, pray and fast, and then watch what God will do. Get serious about it. How serious are you about this God thing? Really, how serious are you about this God thing? Are you seriously in love with with Christ? Because can I say this to you? And I'm not throwing any stones. I'm speaking to me just as much as I am you. Can you imagine if several hundred of us get real serious about this Christ thing? This place would explode. Can you imagine that? You see, how serious are you about this Christ thing? The third is the sign seeker. I mentioned him a little bit earlier. The sign seeker is kind of, kind of like this. When we take Jacob, or especially when he was about three or four years old, we take him to the beach, and, and um, he was scared of the water. So he would only go down to where the surf came in, where there was like an inch of water, and, and you know, where the foam comes in. And he would like put his toe out kind of like this, like he was in a running stance. And he would face us while we're laying out on the beach, and he'd be looking at us, and he'd be looking back at the water. And just as soon as the water touched a toe, he was, he was gone. He'd run towards us as fast as he can, just looking at us, his eyes great big, pale-faced, scared to death. And he wasn't sure, he was testing the waters. Man, he, he was looking at us, making sure that everything was okay. We were his sign that he was going to be all right. You see, sometimes we do God the same way. The only time that we move in our faith is when we get a sign. 
Uh, let me give you an example. You're going through this difficulty in your marriage, and, and you're like, I need a sign. And, and all of a sudden, your spouse comes home one day, and he treats you good, or she treats you good. And so you think that's your sign, and you're like, ooh, on cloud nine. And then the next day, it, it, things kind of go back to normal. And so all of a sudden, your faith just whoo, deflates. It's because you're banking on the sign rather than the real thing. We see this with the Father. In verses 21 through 24, look there real quick. Verses 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, he says, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire and almost killed him. But if you can do anything, take pity on me. And then if you can, we already said that, but then look at here, Jesus says this, Everything is possible for him who believes. How much is possible? How much is possible? Real loud, how much is possible? You see, belief is everything. And then look what happens. Well, immediately the boy's father said, I do believe, but can you give me a can you give me a, a little sign? Man, what is this? Why do we operate this way? Think about it with me for a second. Why do we tend to to do this? We've become these professional negotiators with God. Think about it. God, it if you'll get me out of this mess, I promise you, I'll live for you forever. You ever been there? <laughs> God, if you'll straighten her out, I promise you, I'll start to tithe. God, if you want me to be involved in church, give me a sign by giving me a promotion at work. God, if you want me to witness to my coworker, give me a sign. Go figure. Enough already. You know what? God's already given us the sign. If it's not enough sign for you, then we have an issue here. Think about this for a second. It was not enough sign, I can't believe it, for this father that the master surgeon, the great physician, the giver of all good things was standing in front of him. If that's not enough sign, he'll never have enough sign. If Christ dying on a cross for you is not enough sign, can I tell you something? You'll never have enough sign we've got to begin to to live not for the sign but but for the real thing you see this father had jesus standing right in front of him and rather than looking into the eyes of the real thing he was looking over his shoulder for a sign wow where are you at with this You see, we see that there are three or four different aspects of faith. And then there's the fourth aspect of faith. This is the real one. This is what we call the real thing. Jesus had the real thing going on. He showed us how faith is supposed to be. We see this. And this is where the miracle takes place. Look with me at verse 25. Verse 25. And we're going to be closing in a couple minutes. Verse 25 says this, when Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit, and he said, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked and convulsed violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand, and he lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Wow. Wow. How can we have that real thing kind of faith? How? Can I tell you how? It's pretty easy. 
It's just two things you have to do. The first thing that you have to do is you've got to flood yourself with God's word. It's pretty simple. That's all you have to do is flood yourself with, with God's word. You know what? This word right here needs to be your daily deal. Let, let me say this to you. It, if you want to be real healthy, in fact, hold on. Before I go there, let me say this. Did you know the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing the word? It's pretty simple. Hear the word, faith grows. Hear the word, faith grows. I mean, it's pretty simple math. If you want to get physically fit, what do you do? You, you follow a plan. You devise this plan. You follow someone else's plan. You begin to eat right, exercise right, so that you have the evidence of your diet going on. Well, if you want to get healthy spiritually, you follow this plan. And the more that you're in this word, the bigger your faith is going to grow. Here's, here's what's awesome, and I'm going to be transparent with you and honest. I can trace the events of my life and I can see when I look back over the events of my life when my faith was, was big, I can see it. And I can see how things actually worked out in my life. I can see those times. It's during those times that when my faith was big, I, I, I was in His Word. I was definitely in His Word. But there's been other times in my life when my faith has been sp- small and my suffering has been huge and I just have so much fear and doubt And you know what I've noticed about those times? I haven't been in God's Word. You see, we've got to get into God's Word. Let me challenge you this way. Here's the challenge. Just find a, 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 a Bible. If you don't have one, see me. I'll get you one. Get a daily devotional. Spend 10 or 15 minutes a day in God's Word. Watch what it will do to your faith. You see, some of you, the only day that you're getting, this isn't your daily deal. This is your Sunday deal. You got to get into this thing on a daily basis. You can't live through my faith, what I tell you, what Pastor Altman tells you, what Pastor Steve tells you. You can't live through what Pastor Daniel tells you. you you've got to get into this word yourself. And let us put like some icing on the cake for you. <laughs> Don't get it mixed up. Get into this word. And here's the second thing. First, flood yourself. Here's the second thing. You've got to put action to your faith. Act on your faith. You can't, it's not enough just to believe. You've got to put some feet to it. You've got to put some legs to it. You've got to put some wheels to it, if you will. Put some action to it. James tells us in chapter 2, he says this. He says, faith without wheels, faith without legs, faith without feet, faith without action, faith without works is... How many of you know what I'm talking about? In other words, you can have faith, but if it's not... If it doesn't meet action, there's not going to be this supernatural explosion in your life. You're not going to have the evidence of your faith. You see, action is the evidence of your faith. Let me challenge you this way. We need to believe God for bigger things in our lives. But I don't want you to leave here confused. Because if you're going to begin to believe God for bigger things, you've got to be willing to do more things for God. Did you hear me? If you're going to believe God for more, you've got to be willing to do more for God. Because action is the evidence of your faith. Here's my question, and we're going to close with this. How do you respond? How do you respond to suffering? 
How does your faith respond? Better yet, how does your faith respond to someone else's suffering? Because <laughs> this is big. Some of you right now are saying, well, hold on a second, Pastor Mario. I can't respond to someone else's suffering. Mine's too big. <laughs> I got my own stuff to deal with. You know what's so beautiful about this story? Here's, here's, here's what blows me away about this story. Whenever I read these miracles and I study for a, a, a talk with you, I look at chapters before the event and I look at chapters after. I look at chapter 8 and you know what I see in the end of chapter 8? I see that there's this inner turmoil that's going on in the life of Christ. He says to the disciples, I'm about to be murdered for the cause. Right after the miracle takes place, they go to a private place and the Bible says, this is in chapter 9, right after the miracle, the same chapter, he says again to the disciples, I'm about to be murdered for the cause. We know that there was this inner turmoil going on in the life of Christ because we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane just a little while later when Jesus... He bows down to pray and he sweats droplets of blood because so much anguish is going through him and so much stress and and, and the difficulties and being the outcast that he was and all of that going on. We see that. But yet with all of that going on, Jesus got outside of that and then in verse 27, he did something beautiful. He reached down and he picked that boy up. And that's where the miracle took place. Because he became a gift to that boy. Even though he was going through some stuff himself. You see, how do you respond to the suffering of others? Is your life a gift? I mean, really. Is it a gift? Our pianist is coming back. What is the evidence of your faith? How would you grade your faith? What's the evidence of it? You see, when suffering comes into your path, whether it's yours or whether it's someone else's, how do you respond? I want to leave you with a challenge today. Here's my challenge to you. We have this thing that we do here in the church and I haven't mentioned it in probably a couple of months at least. I want to mention it today. Because as I read this story, I see how Jesus has made his life a gift to us. He's he's done these incredible things so that today we can just sit here and talk about him. His life was a gift. In the midst of suffering, he got outside of his own and blessed someone else and Sometimes in life, you know what God's waiting on? He's waiting on you to get outside of yourself. He's waiting on you to quit looking for the sign and start looking for Him. We do this thing called the gift here at the church. The gift is something, I I don't need to really explain all the ramifications of this, the ins and the outs, but you know that we do this random gift thing to where you may be in a drive-thru and you may pay for the person's meal behind you, give this to the attendant and say, hey, listen, um, I want to pay for their meal. Just give them this card. On the back of the card, it says you've been the recipient of a random act of kindness. Would you please log on to calvaryslife.org and just tell us how your life has been affected? We keep up with it on our website, and they're like, I don't know, there's dozens of entries where it, it, this, this thing has stretched from here to Chapel Hill, believe it or not. 
where we have a story on our website to where this lady, I think her sister or someone was just diagnosed with cancer. Not a whole lot of hope. And she pulled up at the parking lot attendant, searching in her purse for change and couldn't come across anything. And the parking lot attendant said, hey, listen, it's, some, it's free today. The car that went out just before you paid for it and they want you to have this card. And they logged on to the to our site and it it says you don't know how much that brought me that day when someone was kind enough to be a gift to me can I challenge you church no matter what you're going through to set it down become a gift to those people around you Maybe it's raking someone's yard. Maybe it's buying someone's groceries. Maybe it's paying for someone's meal that you've never met. You don't get any, any, it's a secret service deal, man. You don't get any accolades for it. But you'll never know what kind of impact you make on somebody's life. And because you've put action to your faith, your faith now has collided with action. Guess what? You probably can expect huge things in your life. Can you imagine if we all caught... The passion of the gift. Can you imagine what would take place in our, not only our church, but our community? I want to challenge you to pick this thing back up and begin to do it on a daily basis. Kim and I, we do it. We're asking you to do it. There are times that we're in places and we're like, we see a family that's struggling. We're like, where's the cards? Where's the cards? How do you respond to suffering? Today, this card, several of them. You take as many as you want. They're going to be right outside on this little table in this foyer. Take a handful with you. You've got as many as you need. And use them. Use them. Use them. And watch what God will do in your suffering. And if you're not suffering, use them. And watch what God will do. Trust me on this. Be a blessing to someone. Stand to your feet.